Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Haug. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we're speaking with Alicia Kennedy. Alicia is a writer from Long Island, now living in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Her work on food and culture has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Tea, the New York Times Style Magazine, Eater, Bon Appetit, and many other publications. She's the author of a newsletter that I consider essential reading called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, where she publishes essays, cultural criticism, a podcast, and recipes. And she's the author of the new book, No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. The book is a fascinating examination of what it has meant to be vegetarian throughout the last several generations. From religious asceticism, via hippie counterculture, punk and post-punk, all the way to the media's current obsession with lab-grown meat replacements, Alicia considers the intersections of climate, politics, and food justice, along with the very real need to have something nourishing, healthy, and delicious to eat each day. Alicia, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thank you so much for having me. We're so glad you're here. You open your new book asking the question, if we remove meat from the center of our plates, what do we find? You found a great deal of flavor, of course, in your own life and career, as well as in your research into plant-based eating. Did you end your work on this book with a new answer to that question? I don't think I ended it with a new answer. I think the answer for me was always, you find abundance. You find food everywhere. When you stop thinking of meat, dairy, eggs as the kind of foundation of your diet. And I think a lot of people who stop eating meat or who just kind of reframe their eating to decenter meat find the same thing. You know, there's this kind of fear of changing eating patterns from what we were raised with. But I think that there's always so much available there that folks find that they realize there was nothing to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. You also say early on, the intention of this book is to change the way you think about meat. And towards the end, you write, the conscientious omnivore is our best ally in destroying industrial animal farming. Can you talk about what might bind these two seemingly opposed groups of eaters, vegetarians or vegans and conscientious omnivores together? Well, I think it just means that, you know, a conscientious omnivore to me is someone who eats meat, eats animal products, but understands the impact of those choices, understands that, you know, you can't probably eat meat every single day and have a good impact on your environment, on workers' rights, on animal welfare. There has to be a limit to how much meat and how much animal products in general you can consume that actually works. So when you're talking about the conscientious omnivore versus someone who eats meat sort of without thinking, you're going to naturally find someone who is probably eating basically a plant-based diet, you know, with some meat thrown in there that has been sourced responsibly. And so I always think that the conscientious omnivore is the best ally of the vegan or vegetarian because ultimately the goal is the same. The goal is to live in line with ecological limitations and to stop factory farming, which is, you know, the way we use land to feed livestock on this industrial scale is a huge part of our problems in terms of 
the food system's massive greenhouse gas emissions. So if we can all get away from that, then we can have these like arguments about animal rights and we can have arguments about, you know, what the best way of maintaining biodiversity is and that sort of thing. We can have arguments about whether we need, you know, a soy-based burger patty. But like until we get to this point where we are not destroying the planet and also at this point too in the U.S. bringing in child labor to keep meat processing going, we can't have those arguments in good faith, really. You know, the arguments we can have now about animal rights, et cetera, it's almost meaningless in the face of this massive, massive problem. And so I would like to see a coalition of folks who understand this issue and come together against this one big thing that we have to fight against instead of arguing about whether it's okay not to eat meat or whether the vegan's having less impact than the person who's eating all the offal, you know, like it's, let's talk about that later because <laughs> we have mm-hmm. bigger fish to fry, I think. So to speak, to use a totally non-vegan <laughs> phrase. <laughs> so that makes me think a little bit about um, your writing on sort of what you call the luxury of choice. Does the onus yeah. become more on those with that luxury to to make those kinds of choices? Do we have more responsibility, um, both from a food justice perspective, but also from a climate and animal welfare perspective? Absolutely. And like, I have no qualms about saying, like, if you can make choices around where you get your food, where your food comes from, what you eat every day, you and you are a, a citizen, especially of the United States, which is, has such a massive impact uh, climactically, environmentally, you know, produces so much meat, like per capita, I think like 260 pounds per person per year, there is, you know, you have a responsibility. And I, I shy away from the word responsibility, because it is so strong. But at the same time, you know, these things have to, you know, there has to be a breaking point. At, you know, we've just had some of the hottest days on record. Uh, and there has to be, someone has to have a responsibility. And we know that it's the fossil fuel companies who are really to blame. We know that it's these massive companies, these very wealthy people, you know, who have private jets, et cetera, et cetera, who are most to blame for everything. (laughs) But like, we have to come together as a collective and say, we are going to change how we live in order to make things better. Uh, we're going, we're, because, you know, if things changed drastically tomorrow, would there still be a case full of beef at your local supermarket? Uh, probably not. You know, if, if things change drastically to be, you know, if all these companies and, and everyone in power and all of the wealthy people came together and said, you know what, we need to do something about this. Uh, would that change what's at the local supermarket? It would. And would it change what's available to eat? It would. And so I think that if we start to make these cultural shifts, we can push that kind of bigger shift that is needed to 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 actually make the the big changes we need. Mm-hmm. So Francis Morlepay happened to be my first ever podcast guest on Eat Drink Think. Her book Diet for a Small Planet figures prominently throughout your book and you note she created a new blueprint for talking about our personal and political roles in the global food system. Can you talk a little bit about how her book affected your work? Well, there's no way to write about not eating meat in the United States and not start basically with Francis Moore LePay because, you know, there was this 
turn towards vegan vegetarianism before her book came out in 1971, before the pamphlet came out before that. But it had always been a bit, you know, niche. It had always kind of had a religious tone to it. And she made this secular case that if people in the U.S. started to eat differently, there would be more food to go around everywhere. Um, And so like the key to stopping hunger would be to use land differently and stop uh, relying so much on on livestock and on industrial livestock. And that was a huge shift in the narrative and the conversation around whether people have this so-called responsibility to eat differently or what it would look like if we decided that we had a responsibility to eat differently in order to, you know, be better toward fellow man, fellow the planet, animals, et cetera. And so that that blueprint that she she created, which, you know, there were some some things that were wrong about protein mixing, et cetera, et cetera. But like without that book, I don't know where the conversation would be because she just like kind of blew everything up in that moment. And it was a it was a time when things were being blown up in general, of course. Like it was the tail end of the counterculture movement of the 60s. Like the farm commune had just started and they were in our a vegan commune. Um, then you started to see more conversation around tofu, tempeh, and different soy foods. And, you know, that that had a different ripple effect um throughout the last 50 years. But she's the one who started it. Like, and and the funny, the the fascinating thing about her is that she had like no idea that she was really starting some sort of movement or really changing the conversation. She just saw, you know, the population bomb and was like, this can't be right. And, you know, all of a sudden changed things, you know, for the rest of us in terms of how we're able to talk about these these issues and how we're able to make our argument and and make that that secular argument that, you know, this is, it's not about being a good person necessarily. It's about, you know, making sure the world could be a functional place, a safe place, a, a place where everyone has food. We just don't do anything. We don't do the things we need to do to get ourselves there. And, you know, that's a big statement that I think is so important to have, like, in your pocket as if you talk about sustainability, if you talk about um, climate change, if you talk about hunger or, or food systems, like it's so it's game changing to just have that, like that we just don't, we don't distribute food correctly. It's not, it's not a problem of capacity. Mm -hmm. Something you don't gloss over in the book is the effect of settler colonizers on traditional foodways. Americans, you write, whether eating meat or not, should be influenced by the traditional diets of the rest of the world, but do so using local ingredients rather than importing staple grains from abroad. What kind of influence are you imagining? And can you tell us what you envision in place of our overconsumption of, say, quinoa, for instance? <laughs> I mean, I don't think any anyone is overconsuming quinoa right now. I don't know the latest data on that. <laughs> I think it had a really hot moment, but I would want to see, you know, who where is Costco getting their quinoa from and, and how much are those farmers paid, et cetera. So, um, but at the same time, 
the U.S. is a place that loves to mix and meld and absorb other cultural traditions, especially when it comes to food. And that's something that can be done without this kind of like obsession with superfoods or super ingredients or, you know, this desire to overproduce uh, or make things a trend. Like, the, I think the hype cycle in food is just such a damaging one. I, you know, there shouldn't be a moment where any food is like a cool food or a hip food, whether we're talking about tinned fish or kale or wagyu beef like it's there is just not no nothing good comes out of a food being overhyped and super popular like there's just that scale is always going to be bad that's never going to bear out something uh positive i think in environmentally speaking etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's there's so much to draw from if you do want to eat a very diverse diet from around the planet it, there's a, a lot to draw from if you want to give up meat um, and, you know, the regional food systems of the U.S. Uh, can grow such a diverse array of grains and, uh, you know, and legumes it's, and vegetables and fruits. And, and it's about going to look for those things closer to home. And, and I think that, you know, we've been taught in the U.S. that, like, agriculture is something far away and different and strange. And we're so disconnected from where our food comes from. And that's by design because then you can make people believe that like wheat is the only grain from which you can make flour and make bread and not that, you know, you, when there's all, all these opportunities for other grains that are more ecologically appropriate or can be used as cover crops for other, other, uh, for other, you know, fruits and vegetables or, or legumes. And, and so the, the forced monotony, the forced kind of, uh, monocropping of, of the diet in the U S has made it seem like we have to go elsewhere for something special or for something that'll like save us. Like remember the acai berry being such a popular thing, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, Oh, we have to go to the Amazon for this ingredient. And, but, and, you know, that's another aspect of, of, you know, this settler concept, which is that the, the good thing, the thing that'll save us, the thing that'll make life worth living is always going to be far away and we have to go find it. Um, and there's also this notion that's super capitalist driven, which is that there's going to be one, one bullet that's going to, you know, make sure you can, you're healthy and that you are, uh, you know, that'll fix all your health woes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that narrative collides with the the monocropping and the settler colonialism to make like US food culture so ripe for taking from elsewhere when it can it can look within um mm -hmm. and find very similar you know flavor profiles or just find find some more beauty in the diversity that actually does exist i mean i'm from new york and it's like i'm really glad that that agriculture there is having you know it's has been so supported over the last like 15 to 20 years and is you know so much is is happening that's really interesting um and it's it's really it really changes people's lives you know to know that like oh there's so much diversity right down the road from me or at this farm you know just a few miles away uh why have i been searching for different answers <laughs> in mm -hmm. in different ingredients that have nothing to do with me or where i'm from mhm mm yeah and that monotony the grain monotony that you were speaking of really comes back to meeting in a way right because corn and soy are subsidized to yep. feed animals 
Yeah. And I think, I think it's so funny. Like the, I think I wrote it in the book, but it, it's so funny to me how folks are so obsessed with eating a ton of beef and like, I won't eat tofu. And then it's like, your, your beef was just fed a bunch of soy. So I don't, you know, you're basically eating tofu by extension. <laughs> that reminds me, I had a dinner guest one time I was serving salad and they said, salad, that's what food eats. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> No, I remember when I made my transition to not eating meat and I started to notice like on the meat packaging, it would be like vegetarian fed turkey or chicken. And it's like, well, why don't I just do the vegetarian eating? And they <laughs> like, I don't know. Right. You're like, I didn't know that turkeys ate other things. <laughs> other turkey, Yeah. <laughs> Your book has fascinating chapters on feminist vegans and punk vegans and periods when eschewing meat was a radical choice aligned with the politics of change as opposed to personal preference and choice. Does our current moment have any analogous groups making plant-based eating a tenet of their political philosophy? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I think I wrote about Lagusta Yearwood, who, you know, still maintains one of the few avowedly feminist spaces um, in food and is 100% vegan. Um, Bloodroot, that the feminist restaurant in Connecticut still exists. Um, you know, it has a, as veganism and by extension, vegetarianism has become more fashionable. I think it's it's lost some of that edge in terms of like being a political choice or an overtly political choice. Of course, it's all about context because even as I write, you know, like there are eco-fascist vegans, there are, you know, skinhead vegans, there are uh, Republican vegans. <laughs> I don't know if I yeah, should that. Say was that was fascinating. There are, okay. <laughs> but, you know, like there's the idea in a lot of people's heads is like, oh, a vegan is a progressive, you know, with a progressive woman and, and, you know, has all these like signifiers of subculture. And then, you know, that's not always the case. There mm -hmm. are Nazi vegans. So like you, you can be vegan and have any sort of political affiliation in terms of what I wrote about, which was more on the, the side of, you know, feminists or anarchists or, um, folks who, you know, made this kind of rejection of big agriculture part of their political perspective. Um, that, that is definitely still exists, but it exists in a, in 100% more commodified form and 100% more like mainstream legible form. And I think that's interesting because, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword of this becomes more acceptable, but as it becomes more acceptable and there's less like overt, uh, asking of folks to, you know, make a certain statement, um, in order, you know, or to be in the quote unquote, like in group to be in a restaurant, uh, it, it, does it dull kind of that, that, you know, the knife there a bit? I think so, because it also allows for this more, uh, corporate perspective on like fake meat. Where, you know, it, it, it's not just tempeh bacon anymore in the supermarket. It's beyond meat. It's, it's impossible for burgers. And a lot of these, these meats and a lot of other companies are backed by a lot of big meat processing uh, companies still. So there's, they're, they're making money off of both sides. And I think that the mainstreaming and the legibility of vegan and vegetarian movements has kind of allowed that to happen because... 
you know, it stopped being like you had to, you know, you had to be comfortable with political slogans on the wall in order to dine somewhere, or you had to be, you know, Bloodroot has a fantastic sign above their register that says, um, out of respect for women of size, uh, do not make comments about the richness of the food. You know, you have to, once you're not asking people to consider other people, to consider deeply rooted diet culture and fat phobia, and you're not asking people to consider feminism or genetically modified ingredients or these hosts of issues, when they walk in the door, you're going to make more money. You're going to be more popular. Uh, you're going to get big write-ups in the magazines and the newspapers. And it's going to be like, wow, look at this vegetarian restaurant. That's actually good. But like, yeah, there's something that's lost there. There, There's like this. And, and I mean, this is something that's been lost in a lot of facets of culture, you know, like we've gotten away, you know, some, lots of people still make zines, but you know, that's kind of a lost art form or a dying art form. And when folks move on to creating things on social media more so, those are still, uh, those are owned by these big corporations, you know? And so, or even if you're selling your zine online, like it's going to be hosted by, you know, who, like what server, where, like these things are, these, these things happen throughout culture. Um, you know, every indie band has to be on Spotify, <laughs> even if they, you know, just to be available. Um, and so it, it's, it's a difficult like trade-off, but I, that's, I think also why I wanted to write the book is I wanted to kind of like enshrine this, this moment that happened and, and, you know, m- write this book that would make it so when people write about these things in the future, they can't like ignore that this happened. <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. Definitely made me nostalgic for zines when I was reading that. (laughs) And I had to go dig out my Isa Chanda Mostowitz too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In addition to the chapters on counterculture vegans, one of my favorite sections in the book is the chapter on non-dairy dairy. I don't live anywhere near a fancy vegan cheese shop, so it's a rare treat for me to try these new tiers of artisan fermented cheeses made without milk. Can you talk about them a little bit? It's so cool. And this is one of my favorite parts of the book too. And it's funny because I'm so used to now people telling me the punk chapter is their favorite chapter that I'm so happy to hear a different chapter is someone's favorite chapter. So I was just thinking about this today because someone I follow whose newsletter I follow posted a recipe for tofu feta and uses rejuvelac to ferment it. And like, for me, this is such a fascinating story, which is that like rejuvelac comes out of this wild raw foods movement and this woman Ann Wigmore who had this institute she actually there's still an institute named for her ironically enough here in Puerto Rico um about living foods and and you know there are people just eat sprouts and they drink this fermented wheat berry beverage called rejuvelac and so these raw vegans found out I it's really difficult to nail down the timeline on this, but it is it will fascinate me for the rest of my day, <laughs> which is like, I don't know who got the idea to use cashews, but someone got the idea to use cashews and it was probably a raw vegan and it was probably in in the early 90s or late 80s. And they put some rejuvelac in it and then all of a sudden there was vegan cheese. And so like rejuvelac this fermented wheat berry beverage is like the foundation now of like very fancy cheeses so it's another situation where like vegan vegetarian history gets transformed into this like 
you know, thing that's legible and fancy and elevated and sells for 12 to $15 at like on the, at the Essex market in New York city. Um, and like, but it was the raw vegans who did it first. I still think they're closed now, but Dr. Cow made the best cream cheese, like totally that I've ever had, um, Mm. with cashews. Uh, and like, it's just really fascinating because then a bunch of people like Miyoko Shinner, like uh, Kathy McVeigh, I think, who had Blue Heron Creamery in in Canada, you know, they've written cookbooks where there is Rejuvalac, but now people are moving so far beyond Rejuvalac. They've realized that like you really can ferment nut milk in the, or oat milk even too in similar ways with bacterial cultures the same way you can do with dairy milk. And it's funny to me that it took so long for folks to realize this. But there also was um, someone in Paris doing this at the turn of the century who came from China uh, and, you know, started this soy soy dairy uh, to spread anarchism, <laughs> which is a great story. Um, and, you know, so this is something that has been going on, but it definitely has its roots in in fermented tofu. And then from there has been built upon um, and now is like, it's really, we're really at the beginning, I think, of the best vegan cheese. We're really still not there yet in terms of like how, it, whether it can really compete with dairy cheese. There are some makers who folks say can. Like being here in San Juan, like I haven't done enough tasting in the last couple of years because I think things have gotten a lot better. Um, but it is such a fascinating moment in time, you know, because also like plant-based milks have really like taken over like everyone gets oat milk instead of uh, dairy milk in their in their morning coffee for the most part, um, especially in major urban centers. It's like oat milk is the standard milk now. Um, but to have to change over from cheese to non dairy cheese is like a whole other like ball of wax for some like for good reason. Frankly, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm a vegetarian now, and I can tell you there's a very good reason to eat dairy cheese versus non dairy cheese in terms of texture flavor, like, um, just gooiness, meltiness, et cetera, et cetera. But it is, it is really interesting. I do. And because people also are so, you can tell just by like the conversation around it, like people are obsessed with talking about oat milk. They're obsessed with talking about like, you know, impossible burgers or beyond burgers or lab meat. They're not, no one is obsessed with talking about non-dairy cheese. (laughs) And so like, it's like one of, it's, it's such a weird, like, like people are so weird about cheese in general. And I understand because I am too, like as I grew up lactose intolerant, so I'm also weird about cheese. But like, I think that it's, it's just this very interesting frontier for, for vegan stuff is, is cheese still. And it, and yeah, the origin story is really fascinating. Um, I still have, I, I will probably never find out though, who started the cashew trend. I could get really nerdy about this because I like fermentation and I'm just curious. I don't know if anyone has examined the bacteria in Rejuvalac. Like, is it vastly different from what other cheeses are fermented with or with what yogurt is fermented with, you know, with like a that, regular. That is a good question. Hmm. That's a question for, um, yes, a fermentation expert. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's another related question. Um, I know you craft your own vegan butter. Have you tried culturing it at all? No, and I, I wouldn't. I The thing for me in when I make vegan butter is that I don't want it to taste like anything. Like I mm-hmm. want it to just be fat, like mm-hmm. a fat that functions as butter, but not that doesn't actually taste like butter. You're not spreading um, it on toast. Because 
Exactly. So like you could, there are definitely like recipes out there for like a nice cultured uh, vegan butter. Um, obviously Miyoko, should, like when I want that buttery taste, I just go buy the Miyoko's uh, butter. If, But also, as I said, I'm vegetarian now, so I'm, I'm a little less choosy. But the um the the butter i made yeah i think it worked so well because it was just pure fat with milk fat from coconuts and tasted like nothing so then the the flavor you really wanted to put forward was able to like actually shine um yeah i d- i got to taste some non dairy cheeses last winter in san francisco and they they're really they're quite delicious and just as yeah. pretty wrapped up, sold in, like you say in the book, <laughs> sold by the pound and very precious packaging, looking like fancy cheeses. <laughs> they look great on a cheese board and and they have real richness and nuance of flavor. If you're a stinky cheese person, I think you're going to like just be right there with it. You know, it's not your melty cheddar necessarily, but it's really that right. sort of very satisfying, interesting cheese tasting experience. No, and I I think that's the great thing. I think what people should look for when they're looking for non-dairy cheese is not like a one-to-one replacement for their their dairy cheeses, but something additional that's something different. Mm -hmm. You had some fun in the book writing about how meat has been baked into the language of cooking, not to mention just our everyday speech. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So yeah, it's so hard for me to, I I think it's shown in this conversation, it's really hard for me to talk without using a metaphor or an idiom that relies on dead animals, you know, (laughs) like uh, another fish to fry, kill two birds with one stone. Um, So many things. I think PETA has a little guide to not using those and and their suggestions, though, leave a lot to be desired. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's also in our culinary language, it's so strong, you know, like the, we talk about like the, the kale ribs or, you know, um, things, things that, and the way we also talk about replacing these things have a lot of that, like, um, like doing chicharrones with Yuba or something like that. Like we, we, it's really difficult to think outside of the framework of animal products uh, because it's so embedded in our culinary language and in what we eat and what we desire too. Um, And so I've, I've had a tough time, but I've also decided not to really get too into it. Like <laughs> I've decided to just leave my language meat centric uh, <laughs> without eating meat. And I think that's fine. I think it's fun to play with that um, because, you know, it, it, it usurps expectations in some ways or, or mm-hmm. subverts expe- expectations. Mm-hmm. You, you talk in the book about how meat um, and the reliance on meat and desires for meat so lean towards masculinity a little bit. Do you think that is evident in these linguistic choices as well? Yes, I think that we are hungry as a horse, that sort of thing. (laughs) Or I could eat a horse. (laughs) Um, Like, it's very, very defined by uh, this, this, that cowboy lens, that sort of, like, uh, desire to, yeah, just put protein at the center is very masculine. And I think that that also comes through in how we talk about food. There's so many times I've read about vegan food or a a female, like a a straight 
woman who cooks vegan food and like the the interviewer will be like even my boy even her boyfriend likes it even her husband likes it like the male as though the male diet is like fortified completely on on meat and dairy and and they're not eating enough fiber i which perhaps uh but you know there there's such a there's such a disdain and weirdness around um and also like a feminine feminizing that happens when someone doesn't eat meat anymore um there's that epithet that uh soy boy to describe Mm -hmm. a a you know a more liberal man um and so yeah it's it's definitely uh infected kind of every level and manner of discourse for sure yeah i'm not very up on internet trends (laughs) i was like just kind of you know maybe just this week when I heard about girl dinner and I was like, oh no, do we really have to put like snacking now in opposition? To, but like, uh, no, like, but I, I thought that was girl dinner is interesting because it started as just like a girl on TikTok being like, my boyfriend's not here. So this is what I'm going to eat. I call it girl dinner. And then it blows up into this whole trend cycle. And it's like, I think what it really means and then there are people now saying like, oh, it's we're we're saying okay to disordered eating. And it's like, it's not about a disorder, it's about not cooking. Like it's about it's about going into your fridge and taking out everything you could just eat straight from the fridge and eating it because you're not trying to like make no one has to be, you know, fed. Which also, yeah, it does play into that masculinity discourse because uh like uh, women are are happy to give up that labor, I think, just for for any moment of, of thinking about male appetites. (laughs) Yeah. I I think it's the, it's the sort of gender binary of it that I have a problem with. Not, not the practice I'm all in. Uh, I think we have to call it great. Grazing, I think. Grazing, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that that tr- people need to get off TikTok and like just let it happen by itself. It's like a universe unto itself. So it's like just let it ride. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, In No Meat Required, as you make personal choices about what to eat and what not to eat, and you examine the ways that vegetarians and vegans have made their food choices political over time, you argue directly for eaters to make conscious choices about what they eat and you wish for a world where food access is more just so that choices are better for everyone. Do you think that one feeds the other? Is a world where fewer animals are consumed for food, one where there's more food sovereignty? I think so because it changes how we're using land, right? And it changes how we're using resources. I mean, if we're if we're subsidizing meat and dairy uh, made by these big businesses for billions of dollars a year, why can't we put those billions of dollars into regional food systems that produce a diversity of food and make sure that food is accessible and equitable? Like, if we took that money away from big meat, like, there's so much we can do <laughs> on, on smaller scales to make sure that 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 food is equitably grown and equitably accessed and nutritional needs are met along with cultural needs. Like I do think that divesting from and diverting, especially diverting funds from big meat is like the way to fix the the food system, especially in the U S where, you know, we don't put enough into, uh, you know, our, our, growing vegetable fruits and vegetables like the amount of money like the millions that go into fruits and vegetables and also we're talking about like any old fruits and vegetables versus the billions that go into meat and dairy despite their massive climate impact is just 
a, a wildly massive number. And, you know, there's just, when you think about what could be possible if we uh, decided to focus that effort on, on those, on regional food systems, food equity and food access, like that would be like absolutely game changing from a justice perspective and from a, from a environmental perspective. And ideally also from a labor perspective, if there's, you know, um, getting away from, uh, meat processing efforts and, uh, farming, uh, situations that, you know, are very, very hostile and very dangerous for folks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So eating is an urgent political act, you write. And yet you come back again and again in your book to the idea that our food must be flavorful. I'm sorry, flavorful, enjoyable, and delicious. And you rail against the idea that vegans and vegetarians should just be happy to have options, even if they aren't tasty. Can you talk about how the fight for more plant-based eating might be more easily won on the basis of good flavor? I mean, it's just, it's a no-brainer that when you give someone something delicious, they're not going to argue with you about ethics. I mean, because they'll be too busy eating, you know? And so, like, for me, it is such a clear political goal is to make the food taste better and get it in front of more people, like 100%. Like... And I don't mean taste better in like a way that's like legible. It doesn't have to be like a burger that looks like a McDonald's burger, but it's just made with different ingredients. No, like people aren't like, I just think that a lot of the time we're not giving people enough credit for how interested in food they could be if they were given the the option, the, the ability. Uh, I think it doesn't take much for, to, to make this act that we have to do three times a day or more uh make that interesting i mean you know speaking of tiktok <laughs> you'll see people just struggling mentally emotionally with the 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 plight of making dinner every day like how do we build a world where people have the knowledge and the access and the time uh that that isn't the worst part of their day that 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 they're not suffering from decision fatigue because they need to feed themselves again, or they need to feed their family again. You know, I think that that, that isn't kind of undersung, uh, kind of tailwind possibility that happens if we change the way we, we do the food system (laughs) is that like to build a food system where food is grown well by well-compensated labor with minimal environmental damage you also have to prioritize people having time to prepare food, to think about food, to do that, whether that's in community or whether that's, you know, in their private home and family. Like you, though, that comes along with that, I think, if, if we do things in a different way. Like if we, if we care about having an equitable food system, we're going to have to care about the equity of time and compensation for cooking that food. And so it it just, I think, has a ripple effect in terms of like making life easier and more enjoyable for folks and not just eating life, but life in general. Like (laughs) I think life is better when there's someone in your community or in your home who likes to cook and takes on that role and is, is able to do so in a way that isn't draining of their life sources, you know? Um, uh, and, 
if that food is grown well and if you have more of a connection to it, then that's that's all the better too. Like I think that this this is it's thinking about food for me uh is like it there's no there is no way to untether it from different economic and political approach a different economic and political approach that centers happier people <laughs> um ultimately <laughs> awesome i think uh you know being a publisher of a food magazine, I, I know from my readers tell me that they really like to be thinking about food and thinking about and having time to be preparing food and taking the time to know where their food comes from when they are given that privilege of that time. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, rather radical idea of a restructuring of time is, is uh, it, it's inspiring. It gives, it's hopeful. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> You cite Lagusta Yearwood saying, being against agribusiness and for local seasonal food production comes with a consciousness about the interconnectedness of political struggles, not just for women and animals, but all workers and the land itself. Can you talk a bit about how regional eating fits into your plant-based ethos? Does a shift away from eating animals necessarily lead to a re-regionalization of our food system? I would hope so. And I would also think it it would by extension of this shift of our plates, you know, because if you're not going to have meat or at the center of it, what are you going to have at the center of it? We know soy food, soy grows everywhere. Um, that's why it has long been heralded as kind of the, the real future of food. Um, so there's also that, you know, what do we where do we get our protein now? Where do we get our our vegetables from? Um, again, like if we take away all of these resources and we, that we're putting into industrial animal agriculture and reroute them into regional food systems, you know, that is going to create a new consciousness around what food is local, what food is seasonal, what food is necessary. And so, yeah, I think that regionality is so significant here, um, because, you know, when people ask the question, how do you feed a population of 9 million, 9 billion or 10 billion people on the planet? Like I always say the, the answer is we're not going to feed 10 billion people. We're going to feed each regions are going to feed who makes sense. And we're going to ensure that these are robust and supported. You know, it's, um, regional foodways are, and that also bleeds into so many other aspects too. Like I taught culinary tourism at BU this last semester and like, and also coming from New York state, like, do you know how much tourism potential comes in when you are supporting a regional food system? And when what you're eating in one place is different from what people are eating, not so far away, but far enough away. And you're making different eau de vies with different pro different vegetables. You're making beers flavored with different fruits. And like, you know, these, these are reasons for people to intermingle and to travel in a sustainable way. Ideally, these are ways to support local economies. These are ways to support local artisans and, and, and local uh, creativity. Like it, it's, it's just, a, a different way of thinking that I think would be so beneficial on so many different fronts. And definitely plant-based eating is a way of just reframing our thinking around all of these aspects of, of food. Mm -hmm. One quote that I appreciated from your book 
says, no one without water or heat is asking for a cow-free steak or a 3D printed meal. The media doesn't seem to be getting its fill anytime soon on stories about tech food, even if the pendulum is swinging a bit towards the lack of interest and economic viability. You write of the food tech bros. Basically, they wanted to fix the global food system that had been broken by capitalism with more, better (laughs) capitalism. Do you think this is a narrative which will extinguish itself or is there always more, better capitalism? Oh, there's always more better capitalism. That's how it works. <laughs> it, <laughs> it just keeps keeps on bulldozing everything in its way. Um, but like, you know, it's so interesting because there is a loss of interest in Impossible and Beyond. But now there is USDA approval of lab meat. And so we're going to see what that looks like. And that's being backed. Once again, they're following the model of what like Impossible did, where they got David Chang to serve the burger. Now they've got Jose Andres and they've got Dominique Crenn. And it's just, it's upsetting to me (laughs) on multiple levels. But then there's also the interesting fact of the the right-wing Italian government being against lab meat and like not wanting to approve it. But then you'll see the the opinion section of most uh, U.S. newspapers being like, if Italy is against lab meat, they're against the helping climate change. And it's like, that's literally not true. Like, I'm not for, you know, there's there are ways to protect foodways that aren't against innovation or technology or like the smart use of these things. But just creating a new av- avenue of using energy, using resources, centralizing production, like one disease gets into a lab and, and contaminates one cell of these, these uh, you know, chicken cells or whatever they are. Um, and then you have an outbreak and then how much do you lose? And, and like, it's just such an odd thing to depend on the energy usage is, is off the charts, honestly, um, in terms of they, they need a lot of space, a lot of land in order to, to make this happen. So far, there's no way of doing it without also killing animals, at least on some scale. Um, it just seems to me an absurd, again, use of resources instead of simply saying, let's eat more plants, let's support small farmers of animals and and small farmers of other things as well. Let's see what we can do when we decide not to produce at an ind- anything anything at an industrial scale because it also like is lab meat going to replace the amount of meat that th- people in the US are accustomed to eating. Like they they haven't been able to say yes. Like it's not going to be a one to one like replacement. Um, there's still going to be the need for reduction in consumption. And so like they're, I think they're just kind of lying to folks uh, because they're afraid. They don't want people to be afraid <laughs> of the future um, and the insecurity that's possible in our food system. Um, and there, it's a way to make money. It's just a new way of making money. Like, again, it's the same companies that are going to benefit from, from these products that are profiting off of industrial animal agriculture already. And so it's it's just yeah, it's a, it's an obsession that that won't go away because it it enables people to believe that things will not change no matter what happens. Mm, it's interesting to me that one of the narratives they're building is around sort of artisan this is fermented food, you know. <laughs> and and what That's we're really, really talking about is idea. a highly processed food product, you know. And so it's yeah, it's 
it's no, no precision oriented fermentation or something like that. And like, mm-hmm. I think someone should write that. Why are they, they're using fermentation and like the positive connotations that folks have built up around fermentation. Mm-hmm. Like that has been a work of artisans and of writers and of chefs to like make this normalized for a Western audience who has been kind of like away from this in terms of traditions. And then like, yeah, to use it to sell Ooh, that's really a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Toward the very end of your book, you write, the more I learned about agriculture, the more I understood animals' significant role in it, the importance of working with them toward common stewardship of the land. Can you talk a bit about that shift in your thinking? Yes. So the more I learned about, you know, agriculture in different places, the less kind of a tenable veganism became, I suppose, you know, it it just seemed like, why would the cashews be coming from a tropical region to make a fermented nut cheese when I lived in New York where there were cows, et cetera, you know, like it just didn't make sense. Obviously there are places in the world where, you know, it makes sense to eat grazing animals or, you know, their inputs into the ecology are so significant and important and and et cetera. And here you see it in Puerto Rico, especially with goats on different farms. I think the thing that really changed things for me was moving to Puerto Rico and not having the, as we were saying, luxury of choice as much as I had when I lived in New York City. <laughs> and I had like the most luxury of choice that exists on the planet. And being like, it makes more sense for me to buy eggs from my local farmer than, you know, I still buy a lot of tofu because I love tofu, but like to rely on tofu for protein. It makes a lot more sense for me to eat some local goat cheese than it does to make goat cheese out of tofu or cashews. And so I made these small changes and to me, they just made more sense. Also in terms of traveling a lot and understanding that in most places in the world, being vegan is an annoyance and a hindrance to having a realistic experience uh, anywhere. I mean, I've gotten emails from folks who've come here to San Juan and are vegan, and they say they've eaten only at one food truck because it was vegan. And that to me means you're having a horrifying experience, you know, like, yeah, try that food truck, but there's so much else here that you have to eat that you have to experience. But there's a fear of not being able to eat anything. And as a vegetarian, I simply there's so few places I can go where I'm not going to find something to eat. Like everyone knows what a vegetarian is. Everyone has a vegetarian in their family somewhere that has, you know, forced some traditional recipe to be made with a bean instead of meat. Like it just makes a lot of sense to folks. Whereas veganism is like, it doesn't make as much sense around the world. And it doesn't make as much sense around the world because it simply doesn't fit into a lot of ecologies or a lot of lifestyles, a lot of cultural traditions. And so I wanted to be cognizant of that. And and I think being vegetarian gives me kind of a more balance in that, in that I don't feel like I'm being a nuisance, whether existentially or, (laughs) or in literally being a nuisance by making people feed me something. And so, yeah, it was just about being more adaptable and more flexible and also just, yeah, being more in line with what is agricultural reality, which is that animals are part of it. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you've maintained a pretty strong vegan ethos. I mean, your feelings about animal cruelty haven't changed at all. And your shift is more 
both practical and generous so that you can be a guest (laughs) and a traveler. (laughs) 100%. But I mean, I don't know if I definitely do still have a vegan ethos around animal cruelty. Like I can't even look at a cow without wanting to cry, you know, just such beautiful animals. (laughs) And so as a vegetarian, I definitely get a lot of, you know, hate, I think from vegans who are more animal rights driven which I understand. But for me, this is the the balance that makes sense. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We've been listening to food and culture writer Alicia Kennedy, author of No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com. 